Hi friends, welcome to the FBC Zealand Teaching Podcast. We are a local church in Zealand, Michigan, and we desire to know Christ and to make Him known. We invite you into the same journey with us now as we open the scriptures and as we ask God to teach us and reveal Himself to us in His Word. Thanks for stopping by. Well, I invite you to turn in your copy of the scripture uh, to Revelation chapter 8. We're going to be looking at two passages today, Revelation chapter 8 and Revelation chapter 9. As you're doing that, as you're making your way to the very, very back of your Bibles, and if you don't have a Bible, we'd love to give you one. There's some available at the back. Uh, Feel free to even just get up right now, go grab one. If you don't have one with you this morning, uh, it's great to have it in front of you as we study, as we make our way through the book of Revelation. As you do that, I I just want to remind you, too, that as a church, we we have been and are reading through the Bible in a year, and we've invited you into that journey, and I know I've, I've talked to some of you who are, like, right on top of it, and I just want to say, way to go. I want to talk to some of us who are not right on top of it. That would be me along with probably some of you. And I say, that's okay, keep going. Uh, But today begins the New Testament, all right? Um, I I love the Hebrew Bible. I love reading through the Old Testament. I I just love it. But we turn that page and we get stories about Jesus. Wow, the Gospels are amazing. So if you haven't joined us in this thing, I would just want to invite you, join us by starting to read through the New Testament today. From now till the end of the year, we're going to read through um, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, all the way to Revelation. And there's some copies of the reading guide out by the coffee area in our lobby. There's also some on online if you go in the... Um, uh, on the s- second tab from the left, I can't remember what it's called right now, but there's a, there's a link that says Journey Through the Bible. Follow that. That'll give you the upcoming readings if you want to read along with us. And one of the fun things we've been able to do is once a month get together and talk about what on earth is going on here, um, which is always a, a great conversation. Uh, so we invite you into that. The second thing I want to invite you to is um, you'll notice in your bulletin this week, whether you're online looking at your bulletin or you have a paper one in front of you, um, that there is is a card shower coming up for Keith Rasher. Keith Rasher is one of our missionary partners, and Keith and Terry have served faithfully in a whole bunch of different contexts throughout the years. And what makes this especially um, significant is earlier this year, at the age of 65, Keith will be uh, in a week or so here, um, Keith was diagnosed with stage 4 pancreatic cancer. So one of the things that his wife Terry wants to do is have a card shower. And so we'd love to be able to send a whole bunch of cards on behalf of our church family to Keith and to Terry, words of encouragement, words of um, just just building up uh, in whatever um, the Lord brings to your mind. Maybe you know them. You can write a more detailed card. If you don't know them, I encourage you, write a card and share a scripture passage in there. Let's, let's build up these dear friends who have labored in the Lord, and we will send that for you if you return it by next Sunday, okay? So if you bring it here, you return it by next Sunday, we'll send it for you. We'll cover your postage. If not, the, uh, the um, address is in your, in your bulletin, and you can send it from there. So I just really encourage you to do that. Um, they're just some of the amazing people that we get to partner with. We get to partner with some amazing people for the gospel work. Um, Revelation chapter 8 and chapter 9. 
Um, we're going to be going into a passage today that opens up the next section of judgments. We've been uh, reading through Revelation. Uh, we read to the churches. We got a vision of the throne room of God. We got the seal judgments. And last week, we talked about the 144,000 and a multitude around the throne. Today, we get to open the seventh seal, as it's recorded for us in Scripture. And then we get to go through the first six trumpets and all the judgments that come. And even as we do this, it's helpful for us to remember that God's judgment and God's mercy are always two um, important aspects of who he is. And even as these judgments are poured out, um, judgments are poured out, my friend Mark says it this way, because God hates sin. God hates sin. And if you read the end of the book, where we're going to is a place in which there's no more crying, no more pain, because the old order of things have passed away. God says, I'm making everything new. The, the path that we're on is a path towards a, a sinless world. And God hates sin. Now, while we say that God hates sin, the amazing thing is, is God loves sinners. He absolutely loves them. When Jesus came, one of the things we're going to find out in the Gospels is that the people he's going to go to many times are the people who are the most down, the most out, the people who have it less together than all of the religious people. He's going to come to them, and he's going to show them incredible grace. He's going to show them incredible mercy. And of course, his grace and his mercy is available to all, but he's going to come to people who are in really challenging spots. Why? Because God loves people. He loves people like me and you, and he wants to be in relationship with us. So we, we need to keep that in mind as we open up these uh, passages today. When I was in college, <clears throat> when I was in college, um, I, I was a music major for my undergraduate work. And um, as part of that, at the end of every semester, we would have what are called juries. Juries are where you take all the work you've done throughout the whole semester, um, playing etudes, playing solos, playing scales on whatever your instrument is, and you would be able to go, I say that in such a positive sense, you'd be able to go before your professor and a couple of other um, high-level music faculty. I usually got my, my professor, who was the, um, was the principal chair of the Dayton Philharmonic Orchestra as well. I also got one of the principal chairs of the um, Columbus Symphony, because he was a trombone player. And sometimes I even got uh, one of the French horn teachers. And it was like, oh man, I'm gonna go ahead and I'm gonna sit before these guys and gals, and they're gonna critique my playing. In fact, they, they, would, they would grab their pens and they'd have a blank sheet of paper and before long, that blank sheet was blank no more. Uh, they had all sorts of stuff to say. It might be like, that was a nice vibrato there or a good air support or the articulation lacked a lot or whatever. Um, but it was the one thing that determined about the third of your grade for the entire semester that a lot weighed on that 15 minutes. But the amazing thing about jury day was this, is normally you would have um, a music department that was filled with a lot of hustle and bustle. There'd be a lot of noise, there's people practicing. On jury day, it wasn't like that. On jury day, people were dressed up a little bit more. You'd walk into the music um, area and everybody would be talking in a little bit more hushed tones. People are getting into their focus mode. They have their music in front of them. Piano players are off in the practice rooms making sure they've got everything memorized. Trumpet players are going, I hope I make it through this. You know, you're finding your accompanist to make sure that you're in sync together because you've got 15 minutes to demonstrate the work that you've put in for the entire year. 
there was a hush. There was a pause. I, I loved it second semester because after I was done, I always got to go have ice cream because they gave out free ice cream by the student center. So that was like a nice bonus. But I don't know if you've ever experienced something in your life where there's all of a sudden been a pause. There's been a hush. Things aren't operating the way they had been prior. Because that's the picture we're going to get in the beginning of Revelation chapter 8 as we open up these judgments. If you're able to, I invite you to stand with us for the reading of the scripture. Revelation chapter 8 says this, When he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about a half hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar, having a golden censer, and much incense was given to him, so that he might add it to the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense went up with the prayers of the saints out of the angel's hand before God. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with the fire of the altar and threw it to the earth. And there followed peals of thunder and sounds and flashes of lightning and an earthquake. And the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound them. And the first sounded and there came hail and fire mixed with blood and they were thrown to the earth. And a third of the earth was burned up. And a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. And the second angel sounded, and something like a great mountain burned with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood, and a third of the creatures which were in the sea, those which had life, died. And a third of the ships were destroyed. And the the third angel sounded, and a great star fell from heaven, burning like a torch, and it fell on the third of the rivers and on the springs of water. And the name of the star is called Wormwood. And the third of the waters became Wormwood, and many people died from the waters because they were made bitter. And the fourth angel sounded, and a third of the sun and a third of the moon and a third of the stars were struck, so that a third of them would be darkened, and the day would not shine for a third of it, and the night in the same way. Then I looked and I heard an eagle flying in mid-heaven saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth because of the remaining blasts of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound. Then the fifth angel sounded, and then I saw a star from heaven which had fallen to the earth, and a key of the pit of the abyss was given to him. And he opened up the pit of the abyss, and smoke went up from the pit like the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened by the smoke of the pit. They Then out of the smoke <clears throat> came locusts on the earth, and power was given to them, as the scorpions of the earth have power. They were told not to hurt the grass of the earth, nor any green thing, nor any tree, but only the men who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. And they were not permitted to kill anyone, but to torment for five months. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings a man. And in those days, men will seek death and will never find it. They will long to live, and death flees from them. And the appearance of the locusts was like horses prepared for battle, and on their heads appeared to be crowns like gold, and their faces were like the faces of men. They had hair like the hair of women, and their teeth were like the teeth of lions, and they had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the sound of their wings was like the sound of chariots of many horses running to battle. And they have tails like scorpions and stings, and in their tails is the power to hurt men for five months." They have as king over them the angel of the abyss. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek he has the name Apollyon. One woe is past. 
One woe is past. Behold, two woes are still coming after these things. Then the sixth angel sounded, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God, one saying to the sixth trumpet who had, sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who have been bound at the great river Euphrates. And the four angels were released who had been prepared for the hour and day and month and year so that they would kill a third of mankind. And the number of the armies of the horsemen was 200 million. I heard the number of them. And this is how I saw in the vision the horses and those who sit on them. The riders had breastplates of color, the, the color of fire and of hyacinth and of brimstone. The heads of the horses are like the heads of lions, and out of the mouths come fire and smoke and brimstone. A third of mankind was killed by these three plagues, by the fire and the smoke and the brimstone which came out of their mouths. For the power of their horses is in their mouths and in their tails. For their tails are like serpents, having heads, and with them they do no harm. And the rest of mankind, who were not killed by these plagues, did not repent of the works of their hands, so as not to worship demons, and the idols of gold and silver and brass and of stone and of wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk." And they did not repent of their murders, nor their sorceries, nor of their sexual immorality, nor of their thefts. These are the words of God. Father, would you teach us? Would you help us make, help us to have understanding of your word, that we might walk in light of its truth? Thank you, Lord, for the hope that we have in Christ today. We bless you in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. A long chapter, long two chapters, and a lot of details there, and we're not going to touch all of the details, but what I want to do is in the next few moments walk you through what is going on here. And the first thing I want you to notice that we read <clears throat> was that there was silence in, in heaven for about a half hour. We've already been introduced to heaven um, in our reading, and when we have looked at heaven before, you've got, um, uh, you've got um, people gathering around singing praises to God. You have holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. You have songs like worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. You have all of this singing going on before the throne, but here you have something very different. A hush. A pause. A stillness for about a half hour. Imagine if I were to stop talking for a half hour and we were to sit here in stillness. Some of you would probably welcome that. It'd be like the first 30 minutes of quiet in my entire week, maybe your entire life. Um, some of you might go, oh my goodness, after 30 seconds, we need something going on. Here before the throne of God, there's a stillness, there's a quiet, there's a hush that comes over, there is silence for about a half hour. As these trumpets are distributed to seven angels who stand before God, and these seven trumpets are going to be blown by these seven angels to, to unveil the next part of God's judgments upon the earth. Trumpets are a very important 
<coughs> instrument. Um, I would argue they're one of the best instruments, but I was a trumpet major in college, so I'm a little bit biased. Uh, but they're an amazing instrument that, that go back years, years, de- decades, e- e- centuries, millennia, within just natural everyday thing. Trumpets are used for things like to call um, the sound, uh, uh, the sounding of the shofar, they, they, they would call troops to battle. Um, They would use them. For example, you might know the story of Joshua when he goes around Jericho, and on the last day there, they blow the trumpets, and it's like a cry of war, right? Trumpets have incredible power. Trumpets were also used to signal people for things. Trumpets, one writer says, were sounded to stir the emotions. Just as they sounded the alarm as a call to arms before battle, so the trumpets blared to awaken the people to a critical moment in their spiritual lives. You find this trumpet at the end of the book of Revelation here, and it's shouting out, it's blasting out, it's blowing out, because there's a critical moment in the lives of people that is about to take place. So there's silence before the throne for about a half hour. And then all of a sudden, breaking the silence, you get... blasting of the shofar. See, even the kids got quiet on that one. (laughs) It catches you, doesn't it? God's going to be doing something here, and there's going to be a blasting that takes place to call people, to awaken people to this critical moment in their spiritual lives. These six trumpets are sounded to signify great judgments from the Lord to those who dwell upon the earth. We'll meet this phrase in um, chapter 8, verse 13, where there's these woes that come out, um, but it says, woe to those who dwell upon the earth. And when that phrase is used, when that word dwell is used, it's used a couple times in chapters 2 and 3, when it, when it talks about <clears throat> how Jesus says to the, the churches, he says, I know where you live, I know where you dwell. But, but picking up in these latter chapters of Revelation, he uses it, I think, in a technical sense. He says, these are people who dwell upon the earth. And some of the references in the remaining 10 times in, in Revelation refer to the people who dwell on the earth take the mark of the beast on their forehead. They align themselves with the way of the world. They align themselves with evil and wickedness. And it's judgment that's going to come upon those. It's a word that describes people who are walking away from God. And, And as the trumpet blows, it's a call to mind, here's where you are. Many of these blowings or these trumpet sounds, they they mirror judgments that if you were to go back and read the early chapters of the book of Exodus, there's some parallels. This takes Exodus and what happens there with with God and Pharaoh and, and that tug of war that goes on. This takes that to a whole new level which we'll see as we've already read through and as we look a little bit more closely. But, but notice what, what it's describing here. There's these trumpets that are blown. There's an ancient 
picture of a trumpet on your right-hand side. This is a silver trumpet, which is one of the ones that they would have. And he comes, and it says here <clears throat> that with this trumpet um, came hail and fire mixed with blood, and they were thrown to the earth, and a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and the, and the green grass was burned up. What we find here is that there's earthly destruction that is going on. Th this is a, a nearly two-pound piece of hail from South Dakota a couple years ago. Imagine hail coming down. If you go back and you read the story of, um, of Moses in the early parts of Exodus when God is taking his people out, and there's these ten judgments, you'll find that hail is one of them, and hail does incredible, incredible damage. Um, there's fire that goes on. This is a fire, uh, a photo of a fire taken on Mount Carmel in Israel in 2010. And it was started by a boy accidentally. And here you have what starts as a spark, boom, fire. Think of the destruction that's happening to the earth at this point. Over a third of the earth, all these things just do incredible, incredible damage. When you have such damage, it in inevitably leads to famine and to other things, and that's just the first trumpet sounding. The second trumpet sounds in verses 8 and 9, <clears throat> and here we have a description of aquatic destruction. Um, and and I, this, these chapters are kind of hard because um, he's using words that he has to try to describe what he is seeing. And you'll see that. He uses some metaphor here. It sounded, um, the second angel sounded in verse 8, something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea. Something like, that, that's what he sees. He's describing this via metaphor, but he sees incredible destruction happening to the water because the sea became blood. If you remember back to that first plague, um, or one of the first plagues there early on in um, Moses and Pharaoh's story, um, Moses dips his staff, I believe it is, into the water, and the water becomes blood. And you have this incredible destruction come to the people of Egypt because you have to have water for life. And when part of your water sources become tainted by what looks like blood, and it, it makes it un impossible to drink and to bathe and to cleanse certain things. You come to this third trumpet, so you've got earthly destruction with the first. The second trumpet is aquatic destruction. You come to the third, and it's, and it's water pollution, kind of along this same idea, uh, but turned a little bit differently. Here it says that a great star fell from heaven, and the word star here uh, could refer to a variety of different heavenly bodies, but it comes to the earth. Uh, it comes to the earth kind of like a meteor or something like that, and it says it becomes wormwood. Um, wormwood uh, is only used here in the New Testament, and so there's a little bit of scholarly conversation is what is wormwood? This is one of the possibilities. It, it's a tree, in essence, <clears throat> that bitters the waters. It's a tree that makes water impossible to drink. In the ancient period, uh, it yielded a dark green oil. And actually, there's a first century historian uh, named Pliny who records that it was commonly used as an anti-parasitic used to kill intestinal worms. So that's one of the contenders for what this is. But this destruction comes to a moving or flowing body of water of nearly any size. It becomes bitter. And that becomes the third trumpet 
judgment. You come to the fourth trumpet judgment, and here you have, in verse, in verse 12, there's a destruction of light that takes place. A destruction of light that takes place, which mirrors uh, the ninth plague in the story of the Exodus. This phenomenon um, describes a lessening, or it suggests a lessening of light, and this could happen through an eclipse. This could happen um, through another way of darkening of the atmosphere. It would lead to further inability to grow crops, to receive heat from the sun. In other words, there would be from just this one change what is normal and dependable, the cycles and seasons of the earth, the sun coming up, it going down, the moon coming up, there is a significant shifting of what is predictable, and things change within the light structure. You come to the end of these first four trumpet judgments, and there's almost like a little bit of an intermission, because all of a sudden there's an eagle flying overhead. And this could be an eagle. It could also be translated a vulture. Uh, an eagle <clears throat> was a, a symbol of power and authority in the Greco-Roman world. A vulture was a bird of prey, which was a symbol of imminent doom in the ancient Roman world. So whichever way you go, not that great, but there's this, there's this eagle that flies overhead in the midheaven, and it's saying with a loud voice, woe, woe, woe to those who dwell upon the earth. This word woe here is the word ooi. Can you say ooi? Yeah, so if you go home, kids, and you want to have fun, and you're like, Oh, whoa, ooh, ah, you can, it's a great battle cry, I guess. Um, it, and it means, you know, you could translate it, whoa, you could, you could translate it as disaster or horror. It refers to a state of intense hardship or distress, a state of intense hardship or distress. Um, one could express the meaning of the Greek term uai as how greatly one will suffer or what terrible pain will come to one. What's interesting to note here is he doesn't just say woe. He doesn't just say woe, woe. He says woe, woe, woe. Uai, uai, uai is what the eagle sounds. Whenever you have multiple words, especially in a row, take note. Like when it says God is holy, 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 take note. Because it's a way, it's an ancient way of, of underlining and bolding and italicizing and making it, you know, 46 type font or texting in all caps to your best friend or adding exclamation marks on the end. When there's repetition, they're trying to underline something. They want us to see it. This is woe, Whoa, whoa, what incredible disaster and horror and distress that's being talked about coming on the earth. The people in context here are those who dwell upon the earth, people marked by their allegiance to the beast and who live for the things of the earth. Very different than the way Jesus calls his disciples to live, to live not as people who are most interested with what the world can give, but people who live with a kingdom mindset. In fact, Jesus puts it this way. He says, don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but store up yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy, thieves do not break in and steal. He says, because where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. This is disaster, distress coming to those who are marked by their allegiance to the beast, living for things on the earth. 
And that comes to what is going to be the first of these three woes. The fifth angel sounds in chapter 9, verse 1. And it says, a star from heaven, but notice how the star is described, which had fallen to the earth, and the key of the pit of the abyss was given to him. So it seems that the star in 9-1 isn't a celestial star per se. It seems like this refers to an angel or to a leader who is given power to open the abyss leading to the unleashing power of the underworld. As we read this fifth trumpet <coughs> judgment in 9-1 through 9-11, um, I think it refers to demonic um, destruction or demonic affliction because of what is in context here. The pit of the abyss is opened up. And, and this word abyss is an interesting word. It's a word that's used um, in the last part of Revelation where Jesus will send Satan, the adversary, he will send him into the abyss and he will lock it for a period of a thousand years during his millennial reign. It's also a word um, that is used in the book of Luke where there's a bunch of demons that Jesus casts out of the demoniac and they say, please don't send us into the abyss. It's this place of the underworld. One scholar puts it this way. He says, uh, it seems to indicate <clears throat> a transcendent place associated with the dead and hostile powers. Now, Jesus has ultimate authority over these powers, but there is a releasing of these powers because this star, this leader, this, this, this demonic presence, I think, is given the key to the pit of the abyss, and he opens the pit, and we get a whole bunch of description of what happens here. Um, smoke comes up, the smoke like a great furnace, there was darkness in the pit, and then uh, out of the smoke came locusts on the earth and scorpions, and he goes on to, to describe what these do, but basically what they do is they bring inescapable pain, but no death. They bring inescapable pain, but no death. No, no death. He, he uses a lot of metaphor to describe them, and there's a lot of scholarly conversation about who these people are and what they look like and all that. And I just th simply think the best way to understand it is there's demonic affliction that comes, and it comes from this, this image of a scorpion was actually the goddess of the underworld in ancient Egypt. It, it was the god, the goddess Salket, um, and so there's all this imagery used in these verses. It, individuals who have faces like men, hair of women, teeth like lions. The overall picture is great pain caused by those of the demonic realm. They were told not to, to, to harm only those, though, who do, not have, who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. In other words, those that God has marked. And I think in, in context here, he's probably referring to especially the 144,000 because we find out that they have a mark of God on their foreheads to do their ministry without being hindered during the tribulation period. It's to the people who don't have a mark from God on their heads that these demons come and they torment and they torture. They're led, it says, by a king. In Hebrew, his name is Abaddon. And in Greek, he has the name Apollyon. Abaddon means destruction in Hebrew. Apollyon means destroyer in Greek. So you can kind of get a sense of who they are and what they do just based upon their names. And it says in verse 12, one woe is past. Behold, two woes are still coming after these things. Now, we're not going to read the third woe because that'll be in a coming chapter. 
<clears throat> but as we open this sixth trumpet, what we find is incredible death. In the first series of judgments, we find that death came to a quarter of the earth. Here we're going to find in verse 14, um, it says, release the four angels who had been bound at the great river Euphrates. And the four angels were released who had been prepared for the hour and day and month and year so that they would kill a third of mankind. So we go from a third now to a quarter of the remaining people on earth. Sorry, we go from a quarter to a third. I always get that mixed up. Uh, we go from a quarter with the seal judgments to now a third of the remaining people who suffer death on earth. It's a dark time. It, it's, it's a hard time. The Euphrates right here is mentioned, and the Euphrates was a physical barrier between the Eastern and Western worlds. Um, some scholars think that the armies described here um, could be physical descriptions that employ modern warfare in a current time as ours, or perhaps even a future time. It could also be understood <clears throat> that this is a continuing demonic onslaught using types of warfare that we saw earlier in chapter 9. John is attempting to describe what he's seeing using the words he knew from his day. And the end result is a third of mankind is killed by the plague, by fire and brimstone from their mouths. We come, you know, locusts, a plague, fire, brimstone. We've all already kind of seen some stuff. We, we, we come to the ending of where it rests here after all these words. And I find it interesting that before we open up the seventh trumpet, um, we get a little bit of a description of the world, right? Sometimes we might think that we are innocent and that we are blameless. And, and those who have Christ stand spiritually blameless before the Father. But as we look at the world, even in our time today, and certainly the world at this time, here's what we find. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands so as not to worship demons and the idols of gold and silver and of brass and of stone and of wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. Notice that. They did not repent of the works of their hands. In other words, judgment comes here to people who are hardened against God and people who will even harden further against God. I started by saying, God hates sin because God does hate sin. The story of the Bible, after the incredible creation that God makes, and he says it's good, and it's good, it's good, it's good, and he comes to the last day of creation, and he says it's very good. After the fall happens, God's initiative is to bring redemption to sinners. His message is to bring hope to people who are lost. God hates sin, but he loves people. And so we come to the end of this with a bit of soberness because we read this and we go, here's a bunch of people whom Jesus loved and whom Jesus died for who set their foot against him, even experiencing judgment. They're not willing to bend the knee. They're not willing to yield their lives. And in fact, it says here, 
it, it doesn't even just say they, repent, they did not repent of the works of their hands. It says they did not repent of their murders, nor their sorceries, nor their sexual immorality, nor of their thefts. Murders, taking someone's life volitionally. It increases. It grows. It's already present on the earth, but it increases and it grows. They don't repent of it. Sorceries. The word here for sorceries is actually the word in Greek. It's the word pharmakia. You could understand um, maybe that word because we get the word pharmacy from the word pharmakia. So behind this idea of sorcery is a, a using of drugs that leads oneself to the opening themselves to the demonic world. I, I like what one scholar um, says. He says, spiritually speaking, there are four distinct categories of drug misuse. The first, he says, is taking drugs in order to explore spiritual realms. The second is taking drugs in order to engage in sorcery, witchcraft, and the magic arts while under their influence. The third is giving drugs to other people in order to gain control over them, which is another form of sorcery, witchcraft, and magic arts. And the fourth, he says, is taking drugs for pleasure. We look at the world today, and, and drug use is on the rise. I looked at a stat last night that says 13.5% of Americans 12 and over use drugs in the last month. And this isn't the, like, properly prescribed, properly used. This is the, the, the using to somehow cope with the things of life or somehow to experience something um, that they think God can't give them a peace that God can't give, a, 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 a rest that God can't give. There's an increasing year-over-year year usage of drugs that describes this time. Sexual immorality, the word here is a general word. It's a word pornea, and it's used to describe all sorts of sexual immorality. People hide behind, or they don't hide behind, perhaps. They, they, they flaunt openly that I would rather do this than honor God. I'd rather do this than turn to the one who could bring healing into my life. Thefts is simply stealing something uh, from another which does not belong to you. These four things describe the ways in which the people of that time, even though experiencing incredible judgment, they do not bend the knee, they do not turn their face toward God. In judgment, some harden further against God. Some are so deeply hardened against the Lord that they will not bend the knee. And we come to the end of this and you go, wow, that's heavy. Yeah, it is. Because God, God hates sin and he wants to set it right. Which is why he sent Jesus. But to those who do not receive Jesus, to, to those who do not receive the incredible gift given through Jesus' death and resurrection and life for us, come incredible judgment. How then shall we live? In the midst of this judgment, we should live as people who have hope. We should live as people who believe and live as though the mercy of God still exists for those who come to Christ because it does. We, we, we should live with a greater urgency. As we see a holy God who hates sin, we should live with a greater urgency to see people who are stuck in sin not experience judgment because judgment does not come to those who have been redeemed by the blood.
Judgment does not come to those who are redeemed by the blood. This season, right now, beginning last week on Monday, in the Jewish calendar is known as the fall festivals. Uh, It begins with the day of Rosh Hashanah, which is the chief of the new year. Uh, In Judaism, there's actually two new years. There's a civil new year, Rosh Hashanah, and then there's the religious new year, which is Passover, which happens in the spring. Um, On Rosh Hashanah, there's a blowing of the trumpet. I won't blow it for you. Um, (laughs) There's a blowing of the trumpet that happens. And it begins this season of what are called the 10 days of awe. And the 10 days of awe are called to just remind people, do you know before whom you stand? We stand before a God who is rich in mercy and whose grace has come to us through Christ. Do you know before whom you stand? Rosh Hashanah leads to the next... um, the next festival, and it builds its way into the Day of Atonement, building its way then into Sukkot. The Day of Atonement in Israel, is in Judaism, is known as the highest, holiest day of the year. And it's that one day where the high priest in ancient Israel was given um, direction by God to go into the Holy of Holies and to sprinkle blood on the altar. That blood was meant to, to temporarily abate God's wrath against sin, to temporarily cover. But I love what the scriptures say, because they call Jesus, in the book of Hebrews, for example, calls him our high priest. And it says that Jesus goes in to the holy of holies to make intercession for us. And it says that that he places his own blood upon the altar, because the blood of bulls and goats, all, all, all these types of blood, they had their time and they had their place, but one sacrifice once for all was made, and that was the sinless, perfect life of Jesus to become your and my sacrificial lamb. And when he puts his blood on the altar, the way Jesus said at the cross, he said it this way. He said, it is finished. Imagine your life. You're a person and you think back to all the things you have done. You're not a follower of Jesus, perhaps. And you think about what you've thought and you think about what you've said. You think about what you've done and and what you've experienced that's really more described by the ways and the patterns of this world. Think about that. And then think about a Messiah who comes in in your own And in my own inability to save ourselves, looks at this card that says, yep, that's what you thought on that day. That's what you said to that person. That's how you acted towards that individual. And writes his name over top the card. Because while sin is costly, the one who it really cost was Jesus because he was without sin, but he became sin for you and for me. Grace, God's redemptive initiative towards us, we can't earn it. It's a free gift, but it cost Jesus everything. How do we live in light of this truth? couple of quick things before we turn to communion. The first one is we must never look casually at the cross. 
as we celebrate communion today, we need to remember the price our sin cost. But at the same hand, we need to be reminded that if we believe Jesus died and rose again for our sins and we have received his gift of grace and salvation in our life, who we once were is no longer who we are. Praise the Lord. We are bought, we're redeemed, we're purchased, we're sons and daughters of God, and so we're called then to live by his grace in that way. But let's not look casually at the cross. Instead, let us turn to the Lord, the one who gives perfect rest, rest from striving to do good things in order to make our way or our path righteous before God, rest from trying to earn our salvation, rest from our constant failed attempts to be good in our own strength, rest from shame, rest from guilt, rest from the things that we have practiced, whether it be any one of those things, murders, sorceries, sexual immorality, or theft. Let's go back to who we are in Christ. And from him, let us walk forward in the newness of life. I want to invite our worship team to come forward as I close with one passage from the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 9 says this, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with human hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. He entered the holy places once for all, having attained, obtained eternal redemption, eternal cleansing. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. We are saved from our sin, from our guilt, from our shame. We're called to turn to the one who can give us life because we're called to live for in the power of his spirit. We're called to live for the glory of the king. Thanks for listening. We hope that what you heard inspires you to take the next step in your faith. If you have questions about this message or would like more information about our church, we invite you to check us out at fbczealand.org or call us at 616-772-4377.